uh, chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we prepare to hear from your word this morning, I pray that you would eliminate distractions, that you would draw our hearts to you, that we would be humble in receiving the word, that what you have for us today would impact us in our daily living, it would impact us in how we see ourselves and you and others, that you would guide us as we listen, and your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. When um, we, our family lived on South Wymiddle Street for, I, th- I don't know, maybe 12 years, um, 11 or 12, one of the two, and it's just over here in Friendship, and then we've recently moved um, further away I think I forgot my items from my house to come to the office on Sunday morning, maybe one time in 12 years. And uh, this morning, all the way from our North Hills home, I got here and got ready to begin editing, and uh, my stuff was all back at my house. So um, I've had the experience now of traveling in and traveling all the way back and then traveling all the way back, but I do have a sermon for you. Um, It was already written even. So, um, but this morning, I, I want to be helpful. This text is tricky. Um, So we're all going to have to kind of just keep our thinking caps on for for a few minutes as we work through this text together. In fact, I cite for you in a sermon on this particular text, April 16th, so not far from where we're at in the spring, today being May 30th or so. Um, April 16th, 1533, uh, in his sermon, Martin Luther uh, concludes this way. He says, quote, This is a strange text, and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle means, end quote. Um, And and so I I gesture that into your direction uh, to say, indeed, um, this text means something, uh, and, and I think I have a way of helping you understand that, that it means something. And then there's going to be particulars within that text that still mean something, but we might not all exactly definitively and dogmatically own. But I say that to say we're also in good company if we consider the brilliant Martin Luther. When we consider all the ambiguities, and and I'm not going to take my time with you to get into all of the ambiguities because we get way off into the weeds, but there are considerable ambiguities in the text. With the ambiguities then, of course, become uh, theological issues that we're trying to work on. So as you understand, when you read the Bible, you have a web of ideas, right? A web of ideas, a number of texts that you have a faithful or received faithful summary of these texts. Individual or outlier texts usually kind of get woven into that web of ideas because they contribute in some degree to your larger summary that you already have going. 
Um, this text then is one of those outlier texts that the only way to truly kind of grasp it well in a summary fashion is to plug that outlier text into your already established summary of ideas. Um, in other words, whenever you come to a particular ambiguity in a text, don't allow that ambiguity to overthrow your mind and heart as though somehow all of the faithful summary that you've received and understand clearly has now been cast aside or undercut. This text will prove to be helpful, even if it be a bit ambiguous. Uh, there's lexical uncertainties too. When you look at terms within the text, um, there's terms that are translated into the English that are a bit more lexically difficult in the original language. We, we just, I'll give you a small one, and it turns out to be enormous. But I'll give you a small one. Um, if you're looking at your English text, and I don't know all the English texts that are here, um, what everyone prefers in their English translation styling. We use here, if you've gone here for any certain amount of time, you know that we use the English Standard Version. That translation came out when we were in college, and then um, it kind of grew and grew in influence and clarity, and then kind of was adopted beyond college, well into seminary, and so we've stayed with that text. It's just we have a lot of homework done in that English version. I don't know the other English versions. I should have probably taken time now and think about it, but I didn't to see which English versions translate, uh, let's see, the term spirit at the end of verse 18 with a capital in the English text. I don't know if any do, some do, others don't. That becomes a massive issue. Is spirit to be capitalized in the English translation? Well, it's a, that, that's an interpretive guess. It's an interpretive uh, decision that you're making as a translator. Is he speaking spirit as in, you know, the um, soul, the dimension that you go on to live, that we're all embracing, that when we die in the body, we'll go on to live in the spirit? Is he speaking he's going on after he died in the body to live in the power of the Holy Spirit? Uh, um, so, so, again, lexical ambiguities and difficulties are, are throughout the text. The, the challenge for that is then they become... Uh, texts that are leveraged into a realm of ideas, sometimes poorly and sometimes more helpfully. We have a few challenges before us this morning. I say all that simply to share with you, this passage has and will remain in conclusions this morning somewhat tentative about the exactness or the dogmatism with which I can provide answers this morning. It is perhaps, as we step back from such a challenging text, it is, I think, kind of silly, maybe we should use the word ironic, that if you were to move forward in your text to 2 Peter, you'll see where Peter, at the end of his writing in his second epistle, he's writing, and it's, again, kind of silly now that you have worked through the family codes. So you're through the family codes of the slave and the master, and then you're through the issues of submission and authority, and then we're talking about how these things need to mean something, but we're not sure of their exact meaning in the end and application. Should your wife be doing the checkbook? Or should, is that to belong to a masculine category? You know, we're not, like, no, 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 no. None of that gets off into the weeds. Peter doesn't give those kind of conclusions. They're far too narrow and not worth discussing. But again, he leaves us sometimes left challenged with how to exactly more narrowly apply what he has provided. I think it's just, again, silly or perhaps ironic that when you go to 2 Peter, at the end of 2 Peter, he's telling those to whom he writes about Paul's letters. And he says this, quote, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, end quote. 
So it's just interesting, um, maybe a pot and kettle situation between Paul and Peter. Because Peter, again, with many things that we will go forward to, there are some things in his writing that are otherwise hard to understand, to be clear. And I hope to be clear this morning to you. You know this as a Christian reader. A difficult text does not mean an unhelpful or unnecessary text. So as you look at this text, it, and it, we, um, some people face the book of Revelation that way, that it's just too difficult, um, but it's not. But, but again, just because things are difficult in some of their reading does not render them unhelpful or unnecessary so that we should skip them. Rather, as obscure as some details may be, in this text and other texts, the overall message of the text is a word of great encouragement. Let me uh, outline the, the big picture of it so that you can kind of, I'll, 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 I'll give you some helpful thoughts on the big picture and then you can just live in the big picture. I'll walk you through some of the details and you can kind of just take them and kind of work on them yourself. So let me give you the big picture of how this text is clear and it's very helpful. Um, consider it, let, let me read the text for you and then, and then we'll work on it just briefly for a moment on the big picture. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered. So we'll jump back up into verse 16. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. This is what Pastor Dan handled last week. So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Um, so you have a situation, as was handled last week, where the exhortation to you as a Christian is, you will have uh, challenges in your life. You'll have them in, in, Peter's describing them distinctly in terms of your confession being a Christian. Um, so, so let's just put it into the Apostles' Creed category. If, for all of us, as we confess the Apostles' Creed, it's a basic bare bones outline of the Christian faith. You, you confess the Apostles' Creed. That's who I am. That's what I believe. That's a faithful summary of Scripture's holy teachings. This is who I am as a believer. I cite the Apostles' Creed for you. Okay, in connection to that profession, that's who I am. That's how I live. I am part of that holy Catholic church, meaning my ethics follow my confession. You will at some point within this age experience some manner of suffering because of that. And again, I don't want your eyes to glaze over because we sit here in America. I, I know. I, I feel the tension of that as well. When you talk about suffering, um, it's hard as a minister to clearly and carefully handle suffering in, in the West. Um, we need to be careful and honest about it. But if, but if we receive this text as a word of all time for all God's people, we recognize between the resurrection of Christ, which is covered in this text, and the return of Christ, this time frame, there will be, even in the West, at some point, again, different maybe in kind and degree, but there will be suffering. Not because you're a cantankerous, obnoxious person, but because that's self-inflicted, but because you confess the good confession. And your ethics model that and create tension. Notice the text then, he says, when those who revile your good behavior, your ethical Christianity, your life that's informed by your confession of Christ, they will be put to shame. For it's better to suffer for doing good, that it should be God's will, than for doing evil. If you look at the person being put to shame, look down at the bottom in verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited 
in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Let me give you the big picture of this. So there's people here in the text who, as I just described, will experience some measure of suffering in their life because of their Christianity. Right now, you're in this period of what Peter is describing as God's patience. There's the resurrection event, and then there's the consummation of the judgment. The parallelism is the same with the people in the day of Noah. Do you realize, and we covered this in the book of Genesis, do you realize how difficult it was for Noah to build an ark? And if you're a believer here this morning and you receive that as historical truth, I hope you contemplate on how hard that task actually was. And even if you just step back and you look at the dimensions and you try to translate them through Google and you look at the dimensions of the ark, or you go to the modern ark encounter, or whatever you have to do, consider just the deforesting project that Noah had to complete. It's enormous. During that time, while Noah's getting after it, there were many, you can go to the text, many naysayers, right? Many naysayers. By the end, there was judgment. Water came, didn't it? If you receive these texts as historical, the water came. Eight people alone were saved. Peter's writing to another group of people, Christians, in a period known as God's patience, between resurrection and return. From creation to flood. There will be a faithful few in this period of time that will pass their days faithfully, that will gather on Lord's Day. They'll confess the good confession, and by grace, they'll attempt to ethically live it out. That will create the same tension between Noah and his family and the naysayers in the community. There was a project being built by faith, an ark. There's a project in your life being built by faith with your family, with your friends, with your community, that you do believe this meaning in life is found in Christ Jesus. Your ethics will model that. And then there will be a community throughout this time of God's patience of naysayers. What occurred, Peter says, at the end of the Noahic event, a flood. There was at that point in time one way of salvation, right? Do you see the way of salvation? It's in verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Do you notice there's a singular vessel of deliverance that was made while the ark was being prepared? We'll get into the meaning of Christian baptism next week. But the point for now is that there was an appointed vessel of deliverance and redemption. It was the ark. You either got in the ark and you made it through the waters of judgment or you attempted to swim and you didn't make it. That, that's the point in the parallelism of the text. There is a day of judgment that will come even for those who are mocking you now or for the church in the two-thirds world who indeed is being physically persecuted, who feel their lives are being ruined, who meet in underground churches. Again, it's hard for us to receive because we're so driven away from that. There's a day of judgment coming as in the days of Noah. God's patience is here today. I say that to you immediately to say, if you are here as perhaps on the fence or you are a naysayer, challenge you with this text there is an ark provided the ark 
the vessel of deliverance is the man of verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for our sins. But notice the uniqueness of his suffering. It was the righteous person for the unrighteous peoples. But, but, but notice how he's the vessel of deliverance. He's the ark of verse 20, that he might bring us to God. So I, I implore you this morning, if you're on the fence about redemption, if you're thinking the gospel message is questionable, Perhaps you eat at the smorgasbord of the world's religions and philosophies and the ideas of the day. And you think perhaps it's a conglomeration of all of them. It's a little bit of the yin and the yang of life. You just kind of take the good, you leave the bad, you kind of mix it all in together, cook it up, and then you receive it as some sort of quasi-confession that gives you a good point toward north. Lay this text to conscience. The parallelism is creation to Noah Resurrection to us, to the end. There's a period of patience, and that period of patience ends. Now, I'll say this and I'll move on in the big picture of things. Because again, there is an ark provided. Noah had to get in, right? He embraced the idea that the reign of judgment was coming. He received that word through faith. He was saved by grace. The ark, the man who suffered on your behalf, has been provided. At the end of this text, which we can't get to this week, but he resurrected. You see that in um, the end of verse 21, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then the ascension is in verse 22, where he is the head of all powers right now. So so you're in this period. He he has been glorified. He's here. And so you're waiting, as in the days of Noah, for God's patience to end. This catastrophic judgment return takes place. And very few will find themselves within the tent. And the parallelism will be, just as in the days of Noah, no one saves themselves through swimming. No one. There is not something where, well, I adapt a little bit of, you know, this philosophy, and I listen to a lot of Jordan Peterson videos. I decide to mix it in with little Joe Rogan, and I kind of come together with the smorgasbord of a few more ideas it, it, that, that uh, you know, that's not going to deliver you. You, you, need, you need to get serious about it and think, like, is an ark provided or are there many arks? For the Christian, you confess there is but one. He's verse 18. I need to be found by faith in him. Because I know on the backside, we are in a period of patience. Patience as even with parents. They wear out. This is how the text can be helpful to you as you look at the big picture of the text. It's a word of encouragement to Christians that there has been patience, there has been suffering, there has been mockery. When? Look at Noah. How many people were saved? Eight. Which is a great thing for a small church to be excited by. Remember the the size of the church? There was only eight. See, we have more than eight this morning. You can rejoice as you look at, like, you know, God's power and presence abides, not by volume, but by a fact. His power abides with his people. And no matter the hardship that you're facing providentially, and I'll give you this and then we move on. Remember, you have, like, this small microcosm life 
to which the day of patience may wear out before the day of patience wears out eschatologically for everyone. So you can see, you could say, well, God may return, but again, like we all feel, that's got to be way down the road. And you can kind of keep getting it. But if you consider, yes, that's true, it may be a long way away, it may not. We, we just, we don't have access to that information. But we tend to not have access to that information. We tend to put that off and be like, well, then, therefore, out of sight, out of mind. But remember, not only is there a final judgment, there could be a providential judgment in your individual microcosmic life. In other words, you know you may not live tomorrow. You're like, yeah, but chances are if we statistically do an analysis, I probably will because I've lived a long time to this point. Right, true, fair, fair, fair. But maybe not. So you may get hit by a car. You may be in a car accident. I might get hit on my motorcycle. You might kind of just walk out and have some random freak accident. You, you don't know. But a day of patience is upon you today. Seize upon it. If you're unrepentant, I challenge you, repent. Receive. Rest. Patience will wear out, either in your own life individually or catastrophically at the return, as in the days of Noah. Notice the text. There's a word here as I want to move on into verse 17, uh, linking uh, Pastor Dan's text of verse 17 into our text this morning of verse 18, and the thought connected verse 17, for it's better to suffer for doing good. It just, it, it, it's better to suffer in that manner if, and I want you to key in on this text as we move forward in verse 18, if that should be God's will, then for doing evil, you see, there's a measure of comfort a measure of encouragement if you suffer for your Christian confession. Sometimes you may feel, and I'm sure you would at the point of suffering for your uh, confession. And again, I just simply put it in the gospel. But if, but if we say, what are the propositions of the gospel and how can I know them better? How can I wrestle with them? How can I own them? And how can I profess them with my mouth? The Apostles' Creed is a phenomenal summary. It served the church of Christ for centuries faithfully. It, it, the encouragement, if, if suffering came to you based upon that profession in your heart and in your life, it will feel perhaps as though God has abandoned you. To the church abroad, many perhaps struggle with that in their faith. Thankfully, the Spirit keeps them in grace, but you struggle perhaps with the suffering that you experience in this age due to Christian faithfulness. Notice the text, though, tries to encourage you to recall in times of suffering for doing good that it's not random acts of violence or unkindness. It's not random that you're being pushed out of the inner circle or denied access of opportunity, denied ladder climbing that you feel you've put in the opportunity to do, but someone knows you go to church. Whatever the little thing that turns into kind of a big thing can be that can really kind of derail your faith. It just shows how simple we are, how weak we are, but it's true. This text can anchor your mind to realize it's not random. It's by the will of God. You, you see the text, for it's better to suffer for doing good. Okay, a person is suffering for doing good. And he, caveat, he, he clarifies, if that, the suffering for doing good, should be what? God's will. 
Again, we need to be careful that as we suffer for our confession, that it's God's will and under his watch. But remember, as was mentioned last week, this is explicitly for your Christian confession and the ethics that follow. This is not for being a cantankerous and obnoxious individual that self-inflicts him or herself with injuries. But it's truly connected to your confession. Further, verse 18 unites then your, your victory. So verse 17 is the suffering under the hand and will of God. But you think to yourself, who, why would God cause someone to suffer and, and how could that be a good thing? Ah, you ask. And it is answered. Verse 18. For Christ also suffered. So, he, so who has suffered unto a good thing and how was it the will of God? And how did it provide a good outcome? How so? Could that be in my life? I am not him, but I'm reminded what he did for me. Verse 18, for, for Christ also suffered, for it's better to suffer, for doing good. It's better, and it's God's will. It's not random. Let me give you an example. Verse 18, for Christ also suffered, and he did so once for sins. And again, the degree and kind to which he suffered under the will of God is different than mine. It was for me that he suffered. Right? The righteous for the unrighteous. That's how he suffered. But he did so as the ark of God's appointment. That through his suffering he might bring us the unrighteous to God. Again, then this union, your union to Christ through his suffering on your behalf, and you're taking the tiny vessel of faith and, and receiving all of Christ and all of his benefits through the empty vessel of faith, showers you and covers you in all of his righteousness. It delivers you. And then perhaps you ask yourself, okay, in the, in, in the time of suffering, in this body and life that wastes away and is but a vapor, you ask yourself, how can I be assured to conscience that indeed I will be delivered later? That the suffering in this age, appointed by God and under his care, will lead to victory in some manner. Well, you're being wed to him in verse 18 is sharing in his accomplishment of verse 21. I'll speak of baptism next week, but baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. How so? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Your union to him, verse 22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. He's ascended. He's with angels, authorities, and powers all having been subjected to him. One author comments this way of your union to Christ through his events on your behalf, through the simple vessel of faith, mentions it this way, quote, if a Christian were to suffer to the point of unjust martyrdom for the sake of Christ, such suffering is both purposeful and victorious. Because death is not the final word. Thus, Christ's resurrection, as I mentioned to you in verse 21 and verse 22, ensures that you are under his care. 
and under his watch. And that the future is bright, even if you were to pass in this age. Now to the particular challenges of the text that I introduced at the beginning. Notice um, I do want to jump in now that I'm sure that you have a basic handling of how this text is helpful and deeply meaningful. That as I pass my time as a pilgrim in this age and I face hardship, I am in the ark of Christ through faith. I indeed, when judgment comes, will be delivered. But jump into the particulars. Look at verse 8. For Christ also suffered once for all the sins for the unrighteous, uh, or for the, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And I want to progress through the text now into some of the difficult pieces. Being put to death in the flesh. Now, again, <clears throat> quite straightforwardly, I'm just going to give you a basic plain reading of the text uh, from here of what I seem to see here. Uh, I, I've read the the. the uh, multiple views on the text because it is a challenging text, not just for me, but it is just what it is as I introduced through Martin Luther. In the end, after you strive and you slay, you're like, I don't know. I, that's my approximate. So I'm going to give you my forward reading of the text. Let's take step one, which quite straightforwardly, simply we see that Christ died in the flesh. What could that be but a straightforward reference is dying in terms of humanity? He died as a man. That is, we profess that Jesus Christ as our Savior is truly God and truly man. And this, once again, helps us to see that Jesus died truly as a man. And indeed, he did die truly. It wasn't a phantom it wasn't that he went and hid. It wasn't that someone took him down from the cross just before he gasped his last and restored him and then he hid himself for 40 days and reappeared to the disciples and it's all a conspiracy of some kind. We confess Holy Scripture that indeed Jesus died in the flesh. And he did so for you. One author, again, uh, makes a remark. Well, let me progress through the text first, and then I'll come back to that. But, again, now we get into what we would say, step one, we see already that he died in the flesh. But then notice the next statement, and this is where it gets a little bit more curious as the text warms up to great difficulty. But made alive. So, so being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Again, now he's connecting the death of Christ on the cross. We know this. He was taken down from the cross, placed in Joseph's tombs. Christ died in the flesh. Being made alive in the spirit. As I mentioned to you, one question is already being made alive by what spirit? Is he being made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit? Um, is it simply a statement that he somehow was not alive at one moment and now he's been made alive, renewed? Or rather, is it more simply a statement of when you die, you go on to live? I, I, I tend to go that direction with it. I, I, I think it seems to be that straightforwardly read. Um, he died in the flesh and he was made alive in the spirit. I, I would proclaim the same for any of you at your funeral. And charitable judgment. That if you had died in the flesh, we would trust in charitable judgment that you profess Christ here in this church, a member in good standing, with no contrary evidence, 
we would bless your eulogy the same and made alive in the spirit. Um, that you go on. This is the Christian confession, that we go on in the next dimension alive in a meaning, self-reflexive, self-conscious way. Remember Paul says uh, later out in the New Testament, earlier in the New Testament, that he knew how it would be when he was dead. It would be better to be with Christ than alive. And he self-reflexively spoke on like, you know what it will be like to be alive in that dimension. You, you'll, you'll, you'll know that you're alive. You'll have some sensory knowledge of that experience. I think that's all that that is describing here. He died in the flesh as truly man, and he was made alive in the spirit on the other side immediately. One author does, though, comment about this text and the ambiguity here between spirit and his spirit. He remarks it this way, quote, he is the first, speaking of Jesus Christ here, he is the first who rose and entered into a spiritual life. Thus, Christ now lives according to the spirit. That is, he is true man, but he has a spiritual body. So for now, let's just take first step as we work through the text quickly now. So we've taken the first step. That Jesus Christ has died according to this text, and then he went on living in his spirit in the nether world. So look at the text. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So, so again, I would, I would tend to say spirit needs to remain in lowercase. I'm not saying it's the Holy Spirit. It could be. I, I, I don't know. I would say he's simply describing the same as I would say for you at your gravesite. That's step one. Step two of the text, then, is to discern if the next statement in the text is sequential. Um, so, so now we're looking at a timeline of events. Is Peter giving us one? That's the question. We're like, is he telling us things that happened in order? Or is he telling us just events? I, I tend to offer to you, it seems to be in a straightforward reading, sequential. It seems obvious, which maybe that's the challenge. It shouldn't be so obvious if we look at it more carefully. But if, if we just simply take the straightforward reading, I think he's speaking sequentially. That is the question for you to ask yourself as you read the text. Is, is Peter saying that the proclaiming being described next took place sometime after his death on the cross in the spirit realm. Let me read it for you. I'll start in verse 18 so you can get the flow of the text. And then I want you to ask the question, does this seem sequentially next? He died and then he did this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That he might bring us to God. Now the description of the event being put to death in the flesh. Yeah, yeah I get you. so he's truly God, truly man. The righteous for the unrighteous. He was put to death in the flesh, crucifixion, but made alive in the spirit. Yes, indeed. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Again, is Peter saying that the proclaiming to the spirits in prison, is being described after his death on the cross in a spiritual realm? That's the question of the text. Did he show up in a resurrected form of some manner 
Again, he hasn't resurrected yet, so his body is truly there. He has died. With this we confess. Did he, through spirit, appear in a, another dimension, realm, to spirits who are otherwise characterized as being imprisoned there, and then he proclaimed to them? And then, somewhere in the timeline, he then resurrected. It, it, well, the question is, perhaps you've asked it before, what did he do for those three days? between death and resurrection. Is this a small snapshot of what he did in those three days? Or is it like, no way, no way, no way, no way? I, I don't think so. And there's a whole host of reasons why I don't want it to be so. Uh, um, maybe, but it seems to me, yes. But I share with you my conclusion, if yes, then what we have here is a description of Jesus Christ alive in the spirit proclaiming something to disembodied souls who are in a place of prison. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit in which, so, so in that spirited condition in which, in this, this different aspect of his being in which he went in that spirit condition and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Now, verse 20, because, why would he even do that? Because they, these spirits in prison, formerly did not obey. But who are these spirits and why, what were they not obeying? During the time of God's patience, which waited out in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. You see the quandary. It's a difficult text. Why would he only appear to one generation in between while the spirits were... Why, why, why particularly appear to these mockers? Just solely the folks during the period of Noah? What about all the people that died since that period all the way to the period of Christ's crucifixion? Why would he speak just to this group? Why are we even told it? Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I could wander off, which I don't like to do, but I, I, I could maybe gesture in one direction just to say... Well, it is quite climactic, that age group, that were mocking Noah. You do recall the earth cleansed them. There's a parallelism there. There will be yet another massive cleansing on the earth. Again, I revert back to the beginning. We're in a period of patience, just as they. During this period of patience, you have a choice to either obey or disobey. The folks that are being described here that I think it seems straightforwardly Christ appeared to them in a discernible fashion and he preached to them. They disobeyed. I want to be careful with you because I don't want you to be confused by what I'm saying. I'm working towards my conclusion now. There's a couple of pieces that are left to be sewn up, and I want you to be clear in your mind, at least as far as what I said this morning, so that we, we don't take up swords and slay one another somehow later. So let me be clear. This is not a proclamation of the gospel. There's ways to know that. Um, I think there's a couple key indicators in the text. Number one, linguistically. I'll just say this because I don't like to do linguistics or wade off into the weeds. There's very little fruit in congregational conversation over that. But here I do think there's a piece worth noting. 
the term for proclaim is not the term used in the New Testament for preaching gospel. It's not the term. It's the broader term of making a declaration. You, 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 you could do what Christ is doing here without ordination. You could just stand there and just kind of go for it. You, you could proclaim, hey, tomorrow it's gonna, the sun is going to come out. You, you could do that level of proclaiming. Again, it's broader. It's less specific. It's not gospel proclamation, meaning the term of gospel is not used here, indicating this is not in time of post-mortem opportunity. These folks aren't hearing deliverance. So what are they hearing? Let me read the text for you again, and this is toward my conclusion now. I'll ask you to turn your text one time, and then we're done. Because they formerly did not obey. So, so, so wait, in which, through the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed. Remember, he's not euangelioning. He's not gospel-telling. Uh-uh. He is indeed making a pronouncement. To who? To the spirits in prison. Why are they there? What's the connection to being imprisoned? Or what's the imagery of enslavement? Well, because they formerly did not obey. Obey what? God's call to get in the ark. When was this going on? When God's patience waited in the days of Noah. How long was the patience? The ark was being prepared. Who all came through? A few. Eight persons. They were brought safely through the water. So if he's proclaiming to those who did not obey, and that's all we know about them, is that they, are, they didn't obey God's offer. They rejected it, as many are today, as I implore you not to do. Many did that, and then they died, went on to the nether dimension, and they're in a place of enslavement. Christ appears to them after he died in the flesh, and he proclaims something to them. The question is, what do you think the proclamation was? If it wasn't an offer like uh, a Roman belief, like um, purgatory, where you can appear and perhaps you can get out of this hole you're in through a massive number of different elements. You can perhaps purge or clear, cleanse and you can obtain heaven in a later post-mortem opportunity. Protestants deny the Bible teaches that anywhere. I would hold fast that indeed this is once again no proclamation of deliverance. It is a proclamation. It is a proclamation of victory. The naysayers found out that indeed they were naysayers. God's promises are in full fulfillment. Christ the King appears and they know this now. Again, verse 20 indicates that the proclamation addresses prior unbelief. They mocked, they belittled, they persecuted, they disobeyed when they had opportunity to repent and believe. This is parallel to the end, the very end of the Christian message with the end of the book of Revelation. And you can go into gospel, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see Christ preach on this same thing. That there will be a day of an account. Perhaps Philippians is a great book to go for the final accounting where every tongue will confess and every knee will bow those in heaven and those on the earth and those below the earth. Again, it doesn't matter up or down. It just simply references another dimension where they're not here. But all will give account. And these folks here 
were made aware of the blunder indeed they had made. I promise to be done, but I have to read this to you. If you will turn in your Bible to Luke 16, I'm done with you. I just have to read this. Luke 16. I think it's a great picture of this text. I simply read it and I'll pray. I'm not going to comment. Of course, that might be impossible, but I'll work at it. Luke 16. I, I, I want you to have this First Peter text in your mind. And then I want you to hear in the reading to lay this to your conscience. I want to begin with you in verse 19. This is what I mean about those who are in prison. Verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted, how so, sumptuously, how often, every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, it gets worse. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels. To Abram's side. The rich man, he also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now... He is comforted here. And you, you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house for my five brothers so that, they, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, and I say this to each of you in this room right now, hear this text, please. They have Moses and the prophets, meaning Scripture. Let them hear them. Hear the preaching of the word of God. And he said, no, 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 Father Abraham. But if somebody goes to them, like, from the dead, they will repent. No. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... 
neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let us pray. Father, we ask that you would grace us with your spirit's light, that when we come across such hard texts to understand the netherworld where we have such little understanding and information, we embrace truly all that we do have, but we just confess it's insufficient for our minds, but yet in your wisdom, why would we need to know it? We do trust. We do have faith that's been gifted us by your Holy Spirit to embrace what is seen and what is unseen. Help our unbelief. We ask, just like the disciples, we are an unbelieving people. We just struggle. We'd rather sense, taste, touch, smell, and handle and analyze than believe. Help our unbelief. I pray for anyone here that is in this period of patience and will be found indeed on a day where they wish not to be found as one who is mocking and rejecting. That I'll see in the proclamation of Christ that it's too late. I pray that you'd work on them graciously through the church, through our people, um, in their own conscience by the work of your Holy Spirit. We, we, we all need your work in our lives to overcome our sin, even the sin of unbelief, and bad behavior, unethical living, unkindness. Help us with this. Grace us with your virtues. Help us to continue to study your word and to grow by difficult texts. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.